Well, we're all messes. We made a mess. We, some of us fell into a mess, and some of us are just one decision away from a mess. We've learned that Jesus loves us in our mess. While we were still in a mess, Jesus came to die for us, to give his life for us, to show his love to us. And we see how Jesus interacted in the Gospels. We see how Jesus interacted with people whose lives were a mess. And because of that, we know that Jesus loves us even when our lives are a mess, when we find ourselves in difficulty or in trouble or even when we've made mistakes. Last week we talked about Philippians 1.6 that says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus meets us in our mess, he's committed to us and he carries us through. So today we're going to talk about, not about your mess, but we're going to talk about moving in towards the mess of other people and how we might be able to help other people with their mess. But before we do that, I got a little update on our mess because I started back a few weeks ago, showed you a picture of our backyard um, after the winter, after the grass all died and the dog dug it all up. And I think we saw that picture. There it is. Yeah. And uh, voila, we addressed the mess and here is today. There we go. A lot of hard work, a little bit of cash, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, when you, when you take, when you take on, it's just a, it's just really a picture of what it is to address the mess. When you recognize something, you take it on and you deal with it, life turns around and uh, the Lord is here to help us deal with our messes. But sometimes he asks us to come along and help with other people's messes. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, Jesus was asked a question by a man who was a teacher of religious law. He says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? You see, he's an expert in the law of Moses. So, so Jesus asked him, what do you read in the, in the law? And the man answered. He had a really good answer because he, like, he like took the words right out of Jesus' mouth. When Jesus said, how do you, when Jesus answered the question, how do you do sum up the law? He said the exact same words as this man. The man said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy got it. He knew what the law was all about. He knew what was deep inside underneath the law. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. Well, the man wasn't expecting that, I guess, because it says that the man wanted to justify his actions, because obviously he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He knew it. That's like a lot of us. We know what to do. A lot of people who find themselves in a mess, they can talk about how they can get out of their mess. They can tell other people how to get out of their mess, but they don't do it. They don't follow even their own advice, and they don't get out of their mess. You can be an expert and still not get out of your mess. So the man said, to justify his actions, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus, instead of answering the question directly, which is, which is pretty typical of Jesus, he rarely answered a question directly. He usually answered with a question or a story. And in this case, he answered the question with a story, one that you've probably heard before or heard about. Even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard about the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. 
That's like a pastor like me. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a temple assistant, that would be Pastor Nate or Pastor Eric or Liz, walked over and looked at him lying there. See, they actually walk over and look at the guy. Uh, But they also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked the man. The man replied, Well, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go do the same. You see, when we find people whose lives are in a mess, as, as followers of Jesus, we are to love our neighbor as ourself, and our neighbor is anyone, anyone who we see that is in need, I think was what Jesus was teaching. I think Jesus was trying to get to the point that, the, that any time we see someone in need, we need to be prepared to respond and to be able to assist them. Now, the man lying on the side of the road, he was a mess. And Jesus said to, Jesus was indicating that the proper response to finding a person in their mess was to help them. Well, why don't we always help people? What are some of the reasons why we find uh, it difficult to do the same as Jesus said? Well, first of all, it's probably because it's inconvenient to get involved in someone else's mess. It's not a very convenient thing to do. The truth is that We often don't have room in our lives for messy people. Uh, we have no capacity. We have no time, we would say. I'm too busy. That's what, the, that's what the, the, the pastor said going by. He was too busy. He was on his way to go somewhere. He was too busy. He was not a bad man. He, pro- he, was even a compa- he probably was even a compassionate man. It's just he had somewhere to go. He was on the road. He was going somewhere. He had something he needed to do. Same with the, with the assistants. They had something they needed to go. Maybe they're going to the same meeting. Important people were waiting for them. So oftentimes what happens is we just don't have margin in our lives to be able to help people. We're too busy to follow Jesus. And what we need to do is change our mind or think, our thinking and see those inconveniences in life as an opportunity. <clears throat> Secondly, we probably uh, maybe don't do this often because we like to be comfortable and it's uncomfortable helping people. Uh, we like our comfort zones. Andy Stanley, in his uh, version of this message, he says, comfort zones are good places to recuperate, but not to live. So, you know, sometimes we do need to find a place to comfort, be in comfort. We need to find a place where we can relax, where we can rest, where we can recuperate, or where we can recharge. But that's not the way we should live. Comfort, living in comfort all the time, living in our comfort zone all the time, probably leads to boredom. And then we want something to do, and so we, we, we need, we go looking for entertainment in our society. We get, we get, we get comfortable, then we get bored, then we go for entertainment. I think the Bible's answer for our boredom and our comfort and all these problems is that we get engaged with other people. The best version of ourselves will be found outside of our comfort zones. And then control is an issue as well. We can't control messy people. <clears throat> 
It's difficult to control people whose lives are a mess in one way or another. It's difficult to, to, to get them to do the right thing. They don't always do the right thing. They, you know, um, it's not always, uh, they don't always take our advice. But helping people is not the same as fixing people. And people aren't projects. They're, they're just, they're just people whose lives maybe are in a big mess, but they just need, uh, encouragement and help. They don't need us to invest ourselves completely in them to fix everything in their life. You know, in fact, probably God has a series of people to help this person. We are not personally responsible for every messy person we see. We're just responsible for that moment that we interact with them. But the, but God probably has a series of people that will help someone in their mess. And finally, we probably um, don't get involved in people's messy lives because it's complicated. People's messes are complicated. And there are dangers involved in getting involved with, with uh, people's messes. You can get too involved in other people's messes. They can drag you down. You can, you can try to help someone and they'll reject you and they'll hurt you. And, you know, all these things that, that it, you know, gets very complicated when you get involved in other people's lives. So today I thought what we would do, because this is kind of a, uh, an important topic, I thought maybe we'd get some expert advice or at least some, some perspective on this. And I invited uh, Hope to come and she's going to share a little bit about her work with messy people. So uh, Hope's my wife. So if you didn't know that, this is my wife, Hope. I don't own her, but she's, you know. <laughs> and uh, this week uh, we celebrated 38 years of marriage. Isn't that we did. <laughs> it's a long time to put up with me. But anyway, so I hope you work for Jericho Road Ministries. You're the executive director of this charity. Tell us about your work and the messiness of helping people you support. All right. I'll tell you a bit about Jericho Road Ministries. Uh, Jericho Road works with men mostly. Uh, we are move men from addiction to connection. We do that in a very uh, focused way going through stages because one doesn't fall into addiction and mental health issues really quickly. That's something that um, happens over time, and it will get turned around over time. So we actually provide a um, a staged um, recovery program with an initial nine-month treatment program for men, and then we have second stage housing that is available, housing and programming where a little bit more regular lifestyle, um, they can um, live a more independent uh, type of life after they've graduated, move into the second stage, have a chance to sort of start practicing the things they learned in a more realistic, more normal setting. And then we try to encourage um, moving on into uh, giving back into society. So that movement through stages, giving as much support as an individual needs. And so we serve both men with addiction issues and with mental health issues. Now, you found that uh, people with mental health issues, people with addiction issues, they often uh, have both issues going on. Yeah, there's that that co-occurring disorders that can happen. Well, there can be many reasons. People's lives, as Michael mentioned a moment moment ago, are complicated. (laughs) Everyone has their own story. Uh, There's not, you know, one one way that led to an addiction or one way that led to to mental health issues. But often what happens is... um, you know, there, there's if there is a mental health issue, uh, the depression, the anxiety, 
they're wanting comfort um, and start medicating that, well, they might start medicating it with, you know, uh, drugs, alcohol, that type of thing. So you can end up with, with the two. Or you know, so a mental health issue can lead to addiction, or an addiction can lead to a breakdown in one's ability to think and to reason and, uh, you know, paranoia, um, anxiety, depression uh, gains a, a, a foothold in, in one's life and starts to take over. So the two things very often go hand in hand, becomes complicated. Yeah, it is complicated, but we, I think we oftentimes try to address uh, addiction, mental health issues very simplistically, especially, you know, in the church we've, you know, we've done some, maybe some things that have been unhelpful. We just say, stop. <laughs> yeah, we tell <laughs> now people that, that you know about it, you can't stop it, you know? So now that we've talked about how you got here, yeah, yeah, yeah that kind of, uh, you know, well, just stop doing it. You'll be okay. A lot of times we think that the opposite of addiction is sobriety. And doesn't that sound right? That the opposite of drinking would be to stop drinking. The opposite of using drugs would be to stop using drugs. No. The opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. Because without connection, without a community, without a purpose in life, without relationship in life, you can stop using but there's no healing, there's no growth. And those, those things inside that drove a person to that continue on. You see, addiction is, it's a disease. It's not a matter of willpower. If it was just, oh, I know better now, I can stop, we'd all stop. I'd stop eating chocolate. <laughs> I'd For lose, I'd lose 10 hour. pounds, you know, like whatever. I, you know, if we could just stop it, if it was a matter of willpower. But when we get into addiction issues and mental health issues, these are, these are diseases. And so the person who's addicted to drugs or alcohol may want to stop, but they can't stop. The body is saying, no, 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 this is good, this feels good, and yet they're doing something so, so destructive to themselves. And so it is not, so stopping isn't the, the opposite, but getting that healing, that relationship, that community, that connection around them, so that there's healing from the inside that one doesn't want to or need to do that anymore. And that's a process that takes time. Yeah, so can you give us some examples? Obviously, we want to name any names, but, you know, how, how does it work in someone's life? The, the, um, and maybe how have you seen people not handled properly? Because we're talking about how we might be able to help people. I know oftentimes as in the church, we want to just pray for people. We might want to cast demons out of them. We might, we might think their medication isn't helping them, all of that kind of thing. And, you know, people have sometimes given people really bad advice mm-hmm. because they're trying to fix them. So, you know, have you got any, any, you know, anecdotal stories of that kind of thing happening? Sure. Sure. I've seen um, people that, that come, guys who come to Jericho Road, and, and they've been cycled around and around uh, many times. Uh, and they, they carry a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and especially if they have a, a church background, a Christian background, um, there will be that, that sense of, of such shame that, you know, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, and why am I not delivered? I, I've tried, I've tried, and, you know, why doesn't God do anything? Um, that kind of shame that just brings a person down and down. 
um, and takes away hope and takes away, uh, you know, a vision that, that life could life could be different and there's that judgment the constant feeling that oh i'm being judged that you know i'm not good enough other people maybe they've been able to to get over it but you know obviously i'm a failure and so that then the mental illness you know comes in and those negative ways of thinking and it's just a very destructive cycle and a person begins to isolate and pull back and say well i can't go to church I was drinking last night. <laughs> I can't go to church. They'll know. And, oh, you know, you see, you see a person come to the, the front of the church and they, they pray a prayer and they, they, they confess and they say, oh, you know, I've done this and I'm sorry and, and they, they, they don't want to use anymore. Great. And, you know, a couple months later, they have a, a relapse. They have a slip and, oh, well, I can't face anybody. What do these Christians think of me? And that isolation and they pull back and they, they you know, Instead of connecting, they pull back. If we saw ourselves, our church, more as a hospital instead of a place where we come when we're all clean and good, this is a place where we're all messy. We all need help. And uh, we can't judge one another for our issues. And so that, that type of thing. So I've seen guys that, that have lived with an awful lot of shame, a lot of, of guilt. And until they start to recognize that, hey, I cannot do this. I actually can't do this. That's the first step of the 12 steps is I can not fix myself. And I can't fix that person either. But there is a God, step two. There is a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity, that can bring me back into health. And that third step of surrendering to that higher power. We go, oh, those are good, good steps. There's 12 steps. <laughs> you then go on to what I call the, the honesty steps, steps four and five. When we actually look at our lives, when the addict a person with mental health issues. And you know what? The 12 steps are just simply a really good discipleship tool for any one of us in our messy lives. So steps three and four, where you start to look at your life and to get to know your story and get to know yourself and find out, oh, what is the sickness inside of me? What is wrong inside of me? What is the disease, the, the, the problem that is, is driving me? And you learn your own story and you become honest about it. And you begin to say, yeah, this is who I am. Here's my weaknesses. Here's my strengths. And you share that with somebody else. And you get to see some patterns in your life and begin to recognize that and say, oh, I am a selfish person. Oh, I do have anxiety. And you start to lay those things out and the next steps are to hand that over to God and say, God, change my character. Change my character defects. And let the, our higher power do that. And then relationships. The next steps where you start to look and say, oh, I've hurt people. Am I willing to make amends? People have hurt me. Am I willing to forgive? And you start to work on those relationships. That takes time. That takes time. And then we work through our relationships. And then we move on to the steps of recognizing that, hey, I need to have a conscious contact with God at all times through prayer and meditation and, and, you know, just keeping that connection with God and then doing this inventory over and over again. It's not a, you know, okay, I did it once. I went through my life story and, oh, okay, now I did it. I, I, you know, no, taking a regular inventory. When you make a mistake, immediately 
right away going and making amends. Start putting that into practice every day. Doesn't this sound like becoming like Jesus? You know, living a life like that. And then you get to the last steps where you're, you're giving back. You're applying these principles to every part of our life and we're giving back to others. That's what we want to see happen. And that's, that's a process of healing from the inside out that changes our deepest desires so we no longer desire to drink or to drug. And with mental health issues, we no longer are beating ourselves up and we learn how to live healthy within the boundaries of anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, or whatever. There is a healthy place to live within those things. So that's what we do at Jericho Road. So we're there for the long haul. For the guys who come into our, our addiction program, who live in our second stage houses, the people that we connect with, we can walk with a man for many, many years and through many ups and downs. Yeah, it's kind of like the stock market, right? It doesn't go straight up all the time. It goes no. up and down and up and down. People's lives are, are messy. The road so, of recovery is not a straight line. <laughs> so I guess we're talking today about, you know, um, addressing the mess in other people's lives. <clears throat> and that requires relationship. Mm. And oftentimes, I think, maybe one last question. Oftentimes when we, we have a hard time being in relationship with someone who continues to mess up all the time because we want every, you know, we, we want them to be fixed or whatever. Uh, we, we, you know, this is the, the area that I think people struggle with the most in the church. At least that's what I hear people saying. Well, you know, they're staying the same. They're not changing fast enough. How do we, how do we develop the kind of relationships with people? How do we take the long haul relationships and, and what, what markers do we see that lives are being changed and people are being touched? And how do we kind of, you know, have realistic standards for the people that we're going to be involved in? I think, as you said earlier, um, we can't fix people. We can't fix another person. I can't fix myself, so I, can't, I certainly can't fix another person. So set that aside and stop seeing people as a project. Non-judgment. Jesus didn't judge people. He invited them into a way of living that would bring health and healing to them. But he didn't judge. He just said, come, follow me. So I guess, you know, saying to people, come, follow me and follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus, you know, kind of thing. Um, without judging people, without harshness. But you've got to keep boundaries for yourself and, and know yourself that the, uh, in that story, the man who was trying to justify himself, you know, he was able to say the commandments are, you know, love God and love others as you love yourself. If you don't know yourself and don't know what's healthy for you and don't know your, that you are a loved person, and then how do you have anything to give to somebody else? So there have to be boundaries. Of what, what can I handle and what's, what's healthy, what's not? It's no good getting into a codependent relationship where, you know, you're, you're supporting an addict. <laughs> um, that, that's not a healthy, healthy thing at all. So knowing ourselves, knowing our limitations, relying on other people in the community to help us, um, you're not, I'm not there to fix the men at Jericho Road. I'm just there to help them with some tools that I have in the 12 steps and help them to, to, to find their higher power. And maybe, you know, some come in for a day and some cycle in for a few weeks 
and some last nine months through the addiction treatment program and move on into second stage. And some are my friends now for years and years and years. I look at Kevin Williams, the director of our addiction services, and you know, almost seven years ago, he came into the program from the mental health uh, ward in, in the ROH, and he was a mess, suicidal and just an alcoholic. Had lost everything. And bit by bit by bit, God changed his life. And he did the work. And people came around him. And now he's our director of addiction services. And he's giving back, helping other guys going through the same kind of thing. When Kevin came in, there were two other guys with him came into the program at about the same time. And the statistics usually say with alcoholism and and drug addiction, it's one in three will survive. And so there's Kevin and two other guys that were with him. And... uh, they went through the program at the same time, and I look back now, and Kevin's still doing well. Another one of the friends did really well for a while, had a, a relapse, rolled his car, and died, and we buried him two years ago. And the other fella, up and down and up and down, and we still hold on that that third one will break the statistics. I don't know. But we're there to smile, to love, to pray, to encourage, and give what we can at that time and let them go when they, when you have to. I don't know, it's complicated. There's no easy answer. <laughs> I can't say to you, do this and, you know, your, your loved one will be, will be fixed. Because you can't say that to me. Hope, do this and you'll be fixed. But you can say, I love you, I care for you, let's follow Jesus. So you uh, may be thinking of someone, some situation um, that you know of, maybe someone in your family, someone you work with, someone you know that you're connected with in some kind of way, and you know that their life is spiraling. There's a bit of a mess there. And, uh, and, and maybe God's speaking to your heart today about how you could maybe patiently, without judgment, you can help them. It might not be someone with an addiction issue. It may be some other kind of issue. It may be some kind of, you know, uh, um, some kind of hurt, some kind of brokenness in their life, and the Lord's asking you to help them. So let's just take a minute, and uh, let's pray for them, and let's pray that uh, God will give you the strength and the ability to be able to, to step into their mess a little bit to be able to help them in their, uh, in their, in their time of need. So Hope, would you pray for us? Father God, we know that There are people in our lives that are hurting. Their lives are a mess. Every one of us has somebody in our family, in our work circles, in our neighborhood, someone who crosses our path that needs help. Father, I pray for those individuals because you know each one of them by name. But Lord, right now I ask that you would help us to become willing to step out of our comfort zone and to help somebody. Not because we want to fix them, but because we care. Because we know you, Jesus, can make a difference in their lives. And if all we can do is point them through your love towards you, Father, then that's, that's enough for now. So give us courage to step out. 
Help us, uh, Lord, bring people to our minds, not that we take them on as projects, but, Lord, that we just be someone that can be there for them, even if it's just a smile, a word of encouragement, but that we won't give up on people. We won't judge them and write them off, but, Lord, that we will love as you love us, as your scripture says, love that never fails, love that is patient and kind, love that is long-suffering, that believes the best in others, love that sees that good can come out of difficult situations.